The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And if that verse seems a little bit familiar to you, maybe it's because we had it in our Sunday school lesson just a few weeks ago, Psalm 103, 8. And like you know, that verse, Psalm 103, 8, is not the text for the sermon today. The text portion is in 1 Kings 19, which Dave just read. But that's Psalm 103.8 telling about what kind of God he is. Our, what kind of God our God is should be a key verse to kind of remember through the course of the sermon. I thought today to continue on the theme from the last couple of times I preached here of looking at God's working with God's people on mountaintops. Not, a few months ago, I spoke about what's to be seen on Mount Moriah, and then a little later, after that, a few weeks later, a number of weeks later, what's to be decided on Mount Carmel. And today, we'd like to in our time together, I'm hoping that in our time together we can be watching um, about God's working with Elijah, this time on another mountain, and watching how God works, watching God's working in his life, and thinking about God's working in our lives at the same time, but especially not just watching but learning from that. Um, do you remember the verse in Romans 15.4 of uh, wonder if I can quote that now. Uh, those things which were written beforehand, before time, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. I think 1 Kings 19 is one of those scriptures that gives us hope. I appreciate what I noticed over the years and more recently learned from this passage. So there's another verse to kind of keep in mind. Romans 5.14. Those things which were written aforetime were written for our learning. Not just for our looking, but for our learning. So, so the title that I've chosen for the sermon today what is What's to be Corrected on Mount Horeb? What's to be Corrected on Mount Horeb? And I remind you of that verse in James 5.18 where God says that Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. Let's just think of that one phrase. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. The Amplified Bible renders it this way. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, with the same physical, mental, and spiritual limitations and shortcomings. He was a man like we are. Elijah. Elijah was that kind of a man like we are. And that just amazes me once again as I think about that. Elijah was the greatest of the prophets. Did I say that right now? Um, can I prove that statement? Elijah was the greatest of the prophets. Now, there was a number of really great prophets besides Elijah, like Elisha. 
And I'm thinking about some prophets that lived later. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you could name others. Elijah was the greatest of the prophets. Why do I say that? Well, in the last book, in one of the last verses of the Old Testament, the, the God says how that Elijah is going to come again at some, at, during the day of the Lord. Not any of these other prophets now, but Elijah. Makes me think that in God's view, Elijah might be the greatest of the prophets. On the Mount of Transfiguration uh, in Jesus' time, you know who appeared there speaking with Jesus? It was Moses, symbolic, or a symbol of the law, and Elijah, symbolizing the prophets. Elijah was the greatest of the prophets. Uh, the Jewish people yet today, because of what's written there in the last in Malachi four, um, in their one of their feast ceremonies, they always set a, a place setting for Elijah in case he comes to them on that feast day. And during the course of the evening, they will send one of the children out to look out the front door. Look to the left, look to the right, look up and down, just to make sure, just to see if Elijah isn't coming. Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, I think. And he, the greatest of the prophets, think of 1 Kings 18, you know, that contest on Mount Carmel, had limitations and shortcomings. He had, with the same physical, mental, and spiritual limitations and shortcomings, like 1 Kings 19, we see some of those, don't we? To me, that's just amazing that God himself, the Holy Spirit, would say in the New Testament that the greatest of the prophets is like us, or we are like him. Elijah, for all his greatness, had issues. He had problems. He needed to be corrected. We see all that in 1 Kings 19 in the text before us here today. Let's notice a couple of those. But more specifically, more especially, let's notice God's response to that needy prophet who needed correction. God's patience, his provision, God's long-suffering with him. The answers that God gave Elijah, who is just like us. So let's look at, a few, yeah, let's look at the, some of the problems that Elijah Elijah faced here in 1 Kings 19. Verse 3. Do you see any fear in that verse? I thought it was interesting that other versions pretty much, well, I consulted three other versions, and they also included a phrase about, and Elijah was afraid. King James doesn't say that there, but either way, it's pretty obvious that he was scared, wasn't it? Isn't it? Man of steel that he was, think First Kings 18, who was able to stand straight and tall and be an uh, epitome of courage and godly strength against Ahab and those 450 prophets of Baal that day. That was 1 Kings 18. Now, 1 Kings 19, when there's a little threat to his 
well, let's cross out the word little and just say when there's a threat to his life, he bolts. Humanly speaking, he had plenty of good reason for that because Jezebel was a fearsome foe. Ungodly, uh, passionate about her, Baal, and, and merciless. We can see that in various places in where she's in view in 1 Kings. The last sermon, um, What's to be Decided on Mount Carmel? We thought at length about Elijah's courage up there on Mount Carmel that day. He had courage to give Ahab directives. And Ahab, interestingly, did what Elijah said he should do. He had courage to do his best to bring people to the people that were there to a point of decision, a point of decision. But not only a point of decision, but to the point of the correct, godly, right decision to serve God. And it looks like, verse 39 in chapter 18, like he succeeded in that mission. And of course he was courageous enough to stand outnumbered that day, 450 plus Ahab, to one. And maybe you're like me, you're wondering just a little bit and shaking your head just a little bit and saying, what happened? Why? How can one individual be like that in 1 Kings 18 and then the opposite in, and full of fear in the next chapter, maybe just 24 hours later? But then again, if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, I can probably see shades of Elijah's wishy-washiness in me. And maybe you can in yourself. Humans tend to be that way. Elijah was. Maybe we are too. Did you know that in this world that we're living in, there are just tons of things that we could potentially be scared about. We could list a long list, couldn't we? On the world scene, in our community, all kinds of problems and issues and things coming down the pike that could make it hard for us or, or even beyond that. In the world, in our community, we have issues and problems and things that we're not sure about in our churches and in our families and in ourselves. There's tons of problems that we could be afraid of. And Elijah, man of God that he was, greatest of the prophets that he was, succumbed here to fear. Maybe part of the reason that he did that Maybe just part of the reason was that he didn't have scriptures like we have, like Romans 8.15. For ye have not received the spirit of a... Of, um, I'll just turn to that real quick, like if I can find it. 
Romans 8, 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He didn't have scriptures like 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Elijah didn't have scriptures like 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because... Fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. I thank God for promises like that, that he has graciously given us fear. So that was one of Elijah's problems. To me, and I think maybe to you too, it's obvious there in verse 3. Fear. There's something else that I notice in verse 3, close to the end of the verse. God obviously had, I think, called Elijah to a largely lonely life. Think of the brook Cherith, remember? There he sat day in, day out, with, and the only companions, I guess, were the ravens. Think of old Zarephath up there in Zidon. And in an out-of-the-way place, there was the widow there and his, her son, but largely lonely. Think of certainly of Mount Carmel and the contest that day, First King 18. God had called Elijah largely to a more lonely and solitary life than he has to most of us, I believe. Now, in his depressed state, it seems like at the time of his life when he especially needed human support, he jettisons his servant. wonder why he did that. I'm only guessing that it was because... Um, yeah, why did he do that? Someone who could encourage him, who could possibly encourage and help at a very low time in the prophet's life. But he separated himself from his servant and went on. God hasn't created us to be solitary people. Now some of us enjoy being alone more than others, but God has put us in church, in communities, church communities. God has arranged that we are in families. God hasn't created us to be solitary, but to be able to give and take and live with other people and, and be a blessing to others even as others bless us. People are different. Even people in this church are different, right? We have different viewpoints, different ages, different genders, different talents and gifts, but it's wonderful how God can mesh us together so that our church, even here at Weavertown, is something that is a support and a help for all of us together. A masterpiece of God's planning and work. I remember Jonathan Stolzfus' funeral just a week or so ago, and I was a little bit surprised when Dave Stolzfus said something about how that Jonathan always paid special attention to him. And then either Nate or John Lewis also said a similar thing. Why was I surprised? 
because I thought that he was, that Jonathan was, all, that I was always kind of little special to him and that he paid a special attention to me. That's, and I'm just guessing that some of you are thinking along the same lines that you thought that Jonathan especially noticed you and singled you out and was able to bless and mentor you. That's the kind of person he was. I thank God for Jonathan and his life and legacy. Friends, friends, here Elijah, not only was he fearful, but he was friendless, apparently. And as I think of that, I think of the wonder and truth of Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Okay, let's think then and look at verse 4 just a little bit. And here I think we see, well, we notice fear in verse 3 and friendlessness in verse 3. In verse 4, I think I see failure. Don't you see it there? Um, Elijah's expressing his remorse to God. I failed. I, I wasn't successful. I thought I was going to be. And for Peter Wallace... Um, speaking on this subject has said and, and I appreciated his thoughts he said, said something like just imagine if you thought up a wonderful plan there was a project that needed to be done and you came up with a wonderful way to do it a good plan at work let's say and not only did you come up with the plan but you did it you promoted it and executed it well and people seemed to appreciate it and the boss especially loved it and Somehow, for some reason, it never came to fruition, but it died. He goes on to say, Mr. Wallace, well, that is nothing compared to what Elijah goes through. Because this was not just some project that Elijah was personally vested in. This was the restoration of the people of God. Your, product, your projects at work and in your home are of value to the kingdom of God, but they are not the center of God's purposes for history. What Elijah is doing is the center of God's purposes for history. This has to do with whether the people of God will worship him or whether they will worship Baal. And now his project of reclaiming Israel for Yahweh has failed. Elijah had been, if I can say it this way, had been on a MAGA mission of, you know, not MAGA now, but MAGA. He make Israel godly again. Camp and he had been on a, that campaign, and he had spectacularly failed. He realized that when Jezebel sent that message. I think that Elijah had dared to believe after Carmel and when that rain came and he ran ahead of, Eli uh, ahead of Ahab back to Jezreel I think I'm, I'm guessing that he had dared to believe that the people or that Ahab was going to become a godly man was going to turn from his wickedness and his idols 
and go straight toward God. And in the process, leading the nation of Israel to do the same. But when Jezebel sent that messenger, with that message, he knew instantly that he had failed. And the results of that failure is obvious in the text. So this man of God became discouraged and depressed and despondent. Right after these words from Will Varner, the, chariot, the book The Chariot of Israel, right after a great spiritual experience is the time when Satan's attacks are the strongest. When I was a pastor, it would often happen like this. After a wonderful service of blessing at church, our family would pull out of the church parking lot and about half a mile down the road, one of the children would become sick in the car. What a way to deflate a spiritual bubble. There is a saying, a pastor resigns from his church every Monday. That may not be true, but many pastors can identify with the feeling. That's what happened to Elijah. He was on the mountaintop with God, and then a few hours later, after his great spiritual experience, he's leaving town and running from one woman. Simply stated, Elijah looked at circumstances and not at the Lord. When he first stood fearlessly before Ahab, his eyes were on the Lord. At the lonely brook Cherith, his eyes were on the Lord. And then, when he came down, he got his eyes on Jezebel. When we take our eyes off the Lord and look at the circumstances, we become candidates for despondency. So, Elijah the prophet, the greatest of the prophets, here experienced failure in his life, and it led to depression. As we're looking at that verse, um, just maybe a little bit as an aside, notice that he says, take away my life. And how illogically, how illogically is that? He said, take away my life, after he had just run away from Jezebel out of, and gotten out of her reach. If he really meant that, he could have just presented himself to Jezebel that day rather than running south for X number of miles. We smile when children do that. You know, we're used to our children doing those kind of things. They say funny things like, that don't make sense, like, oh, no, I'm not tired. Even though their eyes are drooping, their eyelids are almost shut. And they will say that up to the time that the eyelids do shut. Why? As I think of all that and how we all are children at times, I thank God that he can handle contradictions like that with adult Christians when adult Christians display those kind of things. And then I ask the question, I ask you, look at verse 5 and 6 and 7. Why was Elijah so sleepy? Why was he sleeping so much? Verse 5 mentions that, that. Verse 6 implies that he went back to sleep again. And verse 7 indicates, would indicate that too, that when he got there, the angel found Elijah sleeping. Why was Elijah sleeping so much? 
different reasons, perhaps. Discouragement always saps one's vitality, doesn't it? Emotional turmoil and spiritual turmoil is, is hard work. We know that from experience. Uh, professionals in that field would, would say that for sure. Maybe there was, maybe Elijah just needed rest because of his strenuous schedule as well. He had just faced a long day up on Mount Carmel. A long day. And then the hand of the Lord was upon him so much that he was able to run right, like 20 miles ahead of uh, the king in his chariot, verse 46 of chapter 18. Not only, I'm suggesting that not only did Elijah exhibit problems that he had of fear, we talked about that, and friendlessness and failure, but also that of physical and maybe emotional and spiritual fatigue. Um, reading again from Mr. Varner. Despondency or despair does not always come from spiritual or emotional causes. Oftentimes, it simply comes from physical causes, lack of sleep or poor eating habits. Satan often attacks us when we're tired. There must be a balance where we can both abound in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and also come apart and rest a while, Mark 6, 31. If we don't learn how to come apart, then we will soon do just that, come apart. So a problem that he had was that of fatigue. And we... Can you relate? Have you felt hurried in the last week? Have you felt harried at all in the last week? If we're honest, we would often, many of us would say that we have. Many, maybe an X number of times. Not only last week, but every week. I think the Lord would have us to maybe take seriously, more seriously perhaps sometimes, that need for even Jesus had the need to go apart and rest a while and we 21st century uh, Christians and pilgrims on our way to heaven could maybe do more for the Lord if we would do just a little less at times well Elijah had his problems here in 1 Kings 19, and maybe the biggest problem was the one that is noticed in verse 10 and again in verse 14. So there was the fear problem, the friendlessness problem, the failure problem, he felt as if he was a failure, the fatigue problem. Do you see it in verse 10 and verse 14? He said, the Lord said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Was that a true statement? Well, I think maybe it was. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. Was that true? Well, yeah, I think it was. 
and I, even I only, am left. Was that true? Well, no, actually it wasn't true. And they seek my life to take it away. And that was probably true. Obviously that was true. That of falsehood. Am I accusing this greatest of the prophets of, of lying in the face of God? Well, not really. No, not really. And yet, his feelings and his emotional turmoil got in the way of total honesty here. It felt true enough like he was the only one left, but God makes it real clear later on that that was not the case. His feelings got in the way of total honesty, and we could just scratch that word total, couldn't we? Because there is no other kind of honesty but total honesty. And even as we talk about that, maybe the Holy Spirit is reminding you of times when you expressed partial untruthfulness. He often has done that to me and still does. There is nothing like partial untruthfulness, is there? It's just, it's all untruthfulness. That of falsehood. And something that often goes along with a problem like that, a problem of falsehood, I think is a companion and a partner with something called pride. And can you see pride in that verse, in verses 10 and verse 14? I just suggest that, the, that, that his emphasis on himself there, do you see the eyes? I see three of them. I have been very jealous. I, even I only, am left. And then the my, they seek my life. So Will Varner had said that he had taken his eyes off of the Lord and fixed his eyes on Jezebel. Another person that he had, was fixing his eyes on, instead of the Lord, was that person called I. So here we've gone down that list. Here are the five problems that I notice that Elijah exhibits in 1 Kings 19. Let's turn now, and instead of looking at Elijah's problems, look at the Lord's provisions for the despondent prophet. And I just remind you, are you still thinking about Psalms 103.8, how that the Lord is very merciful. Are you still thinking about James 5.18, that Elijah was a man like we are? Are you still thinking about Romans 5.15, that categorically states that all these things, even this, in, were written for our learning, for our help? God's provisions. In Going back to verses 5 through 7, do you notice God's care for Elijah here? So, he had, he had fled. He had flown the coop. He was trying to get away, desperately, headed south, until he couldn't go anymore, and he laid down and slept, and God sent an angel to care for his needs, his physical needs. Isn't that neat? Isn't that something? Elijah's problems were mostly spiritual and emotional. 
in nature, but some physical as well. And the Lord cared about Elijah's physical needs and provided for them wonderfully a couple different times there before addressing the deeper issues. I'm so thankful. As I think about God and his care and his graciousness and his mercy and love, even, I mean, God could have said, if that's how he's going to be, let him suffer a little while. Let him go find his own food. Maybe there's a spring up there on the mountain somewhere that he can find water. That's not, that wasn't the case of the Lord. That wasn't how God arranged it. But his care shines through to me here in verses 5 through 7. I'm thankful that we, that I serve, that we serve a God who cares about us. And he provides. And God does that whether I and whether you are a Mount Carmel Christian or a Mount Horeb Christian. God provides in a, such a gracious way, whether I'm a 1 Kings 18 Christian or a 1 Kings 19 Christian. In verses 9 through 13, and 13, verses 9, and again in verse 13, God asks that searching question. There it is, the question. We notice his care in God's provisions for the prophet. We notice his question. The question is this. What doest thou hear, Elijah? What a gentle and a gracious and a loving way to approach a person that was so messed up like Elijah was at, the, at that point. He, the Lord, of course, could have done it differently, right? He could have given an, Elijah an earful. And we almost think, don't we, that he should have because Elijah really was acting quite childish in our way of looking at things hundreds of years later. But in his love and in his care, God was giving Elijah an opportunity to think differently, to be corrected by that simple question, what doest thou hear, Elijah? A question, asking a question is a often a very wise way to help other people along when we'd rather just rebuke them harshly. Maybe often, maybe we should be learning from God. He did that in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? Ask, first, ask a few different questions. Here, this, que this question, what doest thou here, Elijah? Certainly could have helped in bringing the messed up prophet around. His care, his question. Looking at verses 11 and 12, the character of God is shown here. There is lots of meaning in these verses. I wish I would understand it better. I wish that I could see just a little deeper. Uh, something tells me that there's just a lot that I'm missing about God's going forth up on that mountain and in the physical phenomena that God brings, but God wasn't in 
the storm or the earthquake or the fire. God had revealed himself in similar stupendous ways before on Mount Horeb. Remember? Hundreds of years before. You could go back to Exodus 20. I think maybe it's called Mount Sinai there. But Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are, are the same mountain. What's to be corrected on Mount Horeb? Hundreds of years before, in Moses' time, at the giving of the law, those kind of things were happening. The Bible does categorically say that there was an earthquake and fire, well, and lots of smoke, those kind of physical phenomena. God had revealed himself that way before, and I'm just guessing that's why Elijah went to Mount Horeb, hoping to see a repeat of God's great power there. God had also revealed himself in similar stupendous ways in Elijah's experience before. You know, Mount Carmel. Fire came down from heaven. Of 2 Kings chapter 1, the prophet of fire a couple times brought fire down from heaven. So Elijah was kind of used to seeing God's power displayed in those big, big ways. Through, through those object lessons, God, I think, is revealing that his arm, his hand is not shortened. Even though Elijah's campaign for the Lord had come to a screeching halt. Remember, he had experienced failure. Um, he uh, had understood that Ahab and Jezebel and therefore the nation aren't going to be turning to God. Uh, they're going to continue on their apostate and wicked ways. So that campaign had come to an end, but God is showing him at least, I know there's more there. I wish I would understand more. Maybe you can help me afterwards. But God was showing certainly that the end of the world has not come, Elijah. You are not a failure. Um, just trust me. God can and does work in ways large or small. Large or small. He did back then. Worked in that real small, that still small voice. That's where the presence of the Lord was. And for us sitting here, couple hundred of us, 21st century Christians. If we're like Elijah, Elijah's like us, if we're like Elijah, we do well, don't we? Don't we now? To leave the choice to God. He's the all-knowing one. He's the all-wise one. He's the all-victorious one. For us to let that into his hands rather than our preconceived ideas of how God should be, could be, ought to be working. I think Elijah learned a lesson from that. How about us? Are we also willing to learn that lesson well? In verse, verses 15 through 17, we see God's command. 
So we've noticed his care, we've noticed his question, and looked a little bit at his character. Now, his command. Isn't that kind of significant? That God gives Elijah some work to do. We had talked about how maybe he was overworked and fatigued, and so much so that it's come to a point of where he can hardly be useful in the work of the Lord. But God here says, oh yes, you're not done, you're not washed up, you're still, can still be a part of God's working here on earth. There's work for you to do. His command was to get back to work. God knew that part of Elijah's problem, part of it now, was that he needed to get active again. When failure hits in our lives, can you think of any time when you failed? When failure hits, we do tend to be like Elijah, don't we? We kind of would like the idea of curling up under a little bush. Um, the Bible calls it a juniper tree. Up there on top of the mountain. What's to be corrected on Mount Horeb? Curl up under a bush and complain and fuss and not an awful lot more. God says, "Work. I have work for you to do. Get busy. I remember years ago, Phil Byler said that when you are uncertain about your station in life, when you're not sure what God has for you, when there's uncertainties abounding, that is your chance for you to serve. That's your chance. That's when we should especially be interested in serving and helping others. That rings true. That rings clear to me as I think about Elijah. So maybe you aren't sure whether you should change jobs. Well, instead of dwelling on that a lot, maybe God would be pleased to show you if you would just help your neighbor mow his yard that week. Maybe you're just not sure why you're having conflicts with some of your family. Perhaps you should do it Instead of dwelling on that, do acts of service for others. I think Phil Byler was on to something when he said that a long time ago. Maybe you feel like you're too old to be of any use in the kingdom of the Lord. But there's something for you to do. God has something for all to do. Young, old, male, female, God has something for you. God had something for this prophet who thought that he was a complete failure, completely washed up, never be able to help in the Lord's work. That wasn't the case. His command was, get busy. And I think that we hear that command come rolling over the years. Get busy. Verse 18. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, God says. All the, kneel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Here is 
the crux, I think, of God's provision and working with the prophet, his correction. God, again, just so graciously, just so lovingly, just so gently says, Elijah, you weren't quite right there. His correction. As we come to the end of this sermon, I'm hoping that you can, for yourself, answer the question of the title. What's to be corrected on Mount Horeb? Or what's to be corrected in my life? Has God touched some area of your life here? If he has, between you and the Lord, answer that question. What's to be corrected on Mount Horeb? And if he hasn't, if God hasn't touched any part of your life, that's all right too. How about that you, I have an assignment for you, if God hasn't touched you anywhere at all, and that is um, remember and meditate on those three verses this coming week. Elijah, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. James 5.18. Romans 15.4. And especially Psalm 103.8. Psalm 103, verse 8. And as we close, I will read this, and then if we will kneel together in prayer. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Thank his holy name. Shall we pray?